Welcome to Murder and Mayhem, the podcast where we explore the dark and mysterious side of writing. It's a world filled with more evil and crime than you can shake a sharpened stick at, where people save the world from certain destruction, where spies, terrorists and thugs abound, and where the killer could be someone in your very own home. It's also a world often filled with flawed heroes and likeable villains. But above all, it's a place where we explore the authors who tell these very stories, what makes them tick, and how their words manage to take us to some of the darkest corners of our imaginations. Hello everyone, my name's Valerie Koo and I'm host of the Murder and Mayhem pop-up podcast. This episode is brought to you by the popular online course, Anatomy of a Crime, How to Write About Murder. Over eight spine-chilling modules, you'll delve into each step of the murder process, including the psychological, forensic and legal aspects of homicide from premeditation right through to prison life. Brought to you by one of the world's leading centres, for writing courses, the Australian Writers' Centre. Using both real and fictional cases, you'll discover the many faces of killers, the police who pursue them, and the victims who get caught in the killer's trap, all designed to enhance your crime and thriller writing and help you bring writing about death to life. It's a self-study course with a full audio program, including accompanying handouts and videos and resources where you can view real forensic and police reports reports and a dissection of real murder scenes. Find out more at murdercourse.com. That's murdercourse.com. You're here with Valerie Koo and thank you for joining the Murder and Mayhem podcast. I hope you're enjoying it. Now remember that you can get your free ebook called A Month of Murder and Mayhem at murdercourse.com and it's where you can spend 31 days with the world's best crime and thriller authors but in ebook form instead of this pop-up podcast series. So what we've done is we've taken the authors in this pop-up podcast series and got their key takeaways and insights and put them in this ebook. So if you don't feel in the mood to listen to listen to this podcast, you can always refer to the ebook. And maybe what you can do is perhaps have some kind of daily practice once a day. Have a look at a particular crime and thriller author, and in 31 days, you'll be amazed at how much you will learn. If you don't necessarily want to commit to that, then spread it out a bit. Maybe listen to one a week. But what I encourage you to do is to think about the learning that you've got from that crime and thriller author and apply it to your own writing or even in your own appreciating uh, in your own appreciation of reading the crime and thriller genre now, this interview with Michael Robotham today first appeared in our other podcast called So You Want to Be a Writer. It's our top rating podcast, and it's one that I co-host with fellow author and journalist, Alison Tate. Now, Alison interviews Michael Robotham, who is the super successful crime novelist. Um, he's a best-selling author of psychological thrillers and that have been translated into 22 languages and published in over 50 countries. So there's a lot we can learn from Michael. He is famous for Life or Death, Shatter, The Suspect and Say You're Sorry. Michael's book Life or Death poses the question why a man would escape from prison the day before he's supposed to be released. So I hope you enjoy this chat with Michael Robotham interviewed by Alison Tate. Welcome, Michael. 
Hello, how are you? So tell us a little bit about life or death. Obviously, you're not going to answer that question about why a man would do that. But where did the idea come from? About 19, almost 20 years ago, I read a paragraph in the newspaper about um, a guy who escaped from prison uh, almost on the eve of his release. Actually, in real life, his name was Tony Lanigan. He was a convicted killer, a turned model prisoner, and he escaped from the Malabar Training Centre here in Sydney. And um, and the funniest part about the story, the real-life story, it's not the one that I've written, but the real-life story was that two years earlier he'd escaped, just before he was due to be released. He'd gone up to the Blue Mountains, he'd spent a night under the stars, and the next day he waved down a police car and gave himself up. So when he escaped the second time, nobody bothered putting out a missing persons report because they thought, well, he'll be back tomorrow. You know, he's, just, <laughs> he's gone walkabout again. And, of course, Tony Lanning has never been seen since. He vanished off the face of the earth 19 years ago. He is probably Australia's least most wanted man, but it is a complete mystery about whatever happened to him. How fantastic. So that, that was the real story. I mean, I, I, I didn't know any of that um, until, you know, much more recently in terms of that background because all I remember is the paragraph. And I kept thinking for about... Why would you do it? Why would you escape having served such... I mean, he'd spent most of his life in jail, his adult life in jail, this guy. Why would you escape just before you were due to be released? And it took me about 10 years to come up with a reason for it. Um, and then it probably took me nine, nine books before I thought I had the skill to, to tell it properly. Okay, so I'm really fascinated by that. I'm going to have to go and buy the book now, which is, you know, obviously it's a fantastic hook. I love it. But, you know, having turned it over in your head for 20 years, you know, why did you decide that now's the time? Like what, what is it in your skills base that has suddenly come to the fore that made you think I can do this? Well, I think it, it, several things happen. Um, um, one is because, you know, I knew I was going to... When you write a series like I've done, and, you know, when you, when you go back to the same case, there's a comfort factor in that. There's also a, a potential for burnout, but there's a comfort, comfort factor in going back to similar territory. Um, and I've always tried to mix up my books. It's been like with my third novel, The Night Ferry, I told it from the point of view of a 28-year-old woman entirely in the first person, which is a huge challenge. And I always like to test myself. Uh, and the idea that I was going to set my new book not in the UK, but to set it in in America, in Texas, completely foreign sort of location to me, completely new cast of characters, um, that took you know a completely different voice. You know that whole idea of the, that southern voice that took an that took a lot of courage to start with, and a lot of research, and also I think a lot of skill. You know and. You've got to be, A, confident in your position, uh, your ability to write, and also, in my case, confident that, my, that I thought my readers would come with me, you know, that they would be willing to, to have me write something different and come with me. Okay, well, that was a question I was going to ask you, because given the popularity of your character, Joe O'Loughlin, who I personally love, um, is it difficult to decide to leave him out of a novel? Like in the sense of, you know, you, as you say, you've created a whole new cast of characters, you've gone to a completely different location... And, I mean, I, I have to confess that when I read the blurb for this, I, there was a small twinge of disappointment that it wasn't Joe. Um, so, you know, do you no, worry? There are, 
there are people weep, weeping into their Weetabix. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I wasn't that person. I could be that person, but I wasn't that person. But do you worry that readers are more attached to him as a character than to you as a writer, if you know what I mean? Yeah, no, and, and there's good reason. I must admit, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm thrilled with the way my publishers around the world have uh, embraced Life or Death. But I must admit, when I told them, when I told, you know, these are publishers, you know, that have done very well on the back of me doing well, you know, when you say to them, look, I'm going to, I'm going to leave Joe Locke alone and do something else, you can see that they put on this very pained smile and in the back of their mind they're going, damn. You know, um, <laughs> and, and, and there's plenty of evidence. You don't have to look at you know, people like, like a very good friend of mine, Val McDermott, you know, the Scottish crime writer. Yes. And, and, and whenever Val writes a Tony Hill book, you know, um, her sales figures soar. And when she writes a standalone she struggles to get the same sort of figures. So, you know, but that's not the only reason you write, obviously, because of, of sales. So you, you simply have to sort of suck that up at times. And, and for me, that's why life or death is so important to me because I want to be able to write other books and I want my readers to just want to read anything I write, not just a Joe book. And so, you know, I mean, the jury will be out. We'll see how it goes. I mean, I... I mean, the reaction around the world from my publishers has been that this is the this is the best book that I've ever written. No, I I think it's the best book I've ever written. Um, but we'll wait and see whether the, the diehard Joe and Vincent fans um, are willing to embrace uh, Audie Palmer to the same degree. Well, I'm willing to give him a try based on that question. Like, why would a man escape from prison? I think you've come up with an awesome hook to to make me want to find out. So let's we'll, you know we'll go with that then, shall we? <laughs> I think the other thing that's important for me, it's interesting because, you know, in terms of why I think it's the best book I've, uh, I've written, you know, because it, it is a love story. At the, at the heart of the book, it's a tragic love story as well as all those elements of a thriller that, you know, people expect. But every writer, well, most writers, I shouldn't speak for everyone, most writers will tell you that the book that they have in their mind and in their heart is rarely what they get on the page. They can never quite match yeah. on the page what they envisaged in their head. Yeah. And I'm the same, okay, but of all the books I've done, and this is number 10, this is the one that's come closest. I've come closest to getting, I feel, to getting on the page exactly what I had in my mind when I set out. That must um, feel great for you. It feels tremendous. It's a huge you know, thing too. Because so often, you, you, you know, as proud as you can be of a book, you just realise that, in your head, it was going to be better. Yeah, so to get closer is, um, yeah, no, it's hugely satisfying. So you were a journalist and then a ghostwriter. How do you think that those two things have added to your success as a novelist? Like you've kind of like built, it's like you've taken a step-by-step approach into fiction almost. No, it's true. Well, I mean, and, that's, and that was planned in a sense because I wanted to be a writer from about the age of 12. And then growing up in very small country towns in Australia, I felt as though I had nothing to write about. Um, and journalism was going to be a profession that would give me the material, you know. And so I became a journalist to gather material so I could become a novelist. And uh, and it took me all around the world and it taught me how to, you know, it's that classic thing where, you know, people will, you know, I think one of the worst pieces of advice that can be given to a writer is to write what you know. Because, mm-hmm. you know, because if it happens that you don't know a great deal, then you've got nothing to write about, you know. <laughs> so, what, you know, if, so what you should write about is not what you know, but what what fascinates you, because that, that passion will be what drives you to go and research and find out the material you need to write. 
So it isn't sort of a case of writing what you know, but writing what fascinates you. But when I was starting out, I, I felt as I knew nothing. I'm an idyllic childhood, small country towns, you know, Mark Twain has done all those plots. And um, I, I thought, I've got to experience the world. So that journalism was, was important in that sense for, for giving me an incredible breadth of knowledge, you know, because I, I did police rounds and international affairs. And all, I mean, there were so many areas of journalism that I covered that it sort of... Um, uh, um, that gave me a broad sort of knowledge. And then ghostwriting taught me the discipline of actually spending a long period of time on a single story. Mm. Uh, but more importantly, it taught me how to capture a voice. That ev- yeah. you know, every single person I worked with had a unique voice and, and I had to capture that perfectly so that no one could recognise my fingerprints on their autobiographies. That's yeah. It's interesting you say that. Like I, I have this vision of of you then sort of investigating all these things and then and then writing your novels. But you don't actually write like that, do you? You I read somewhere that you actually don't plot. No, I don't. I don't plot. I mean, all all, all I do is sort of come up with a premise. You know, um, you know, and normally and often the hook for the idea for the book is you know a real life event, like the paragraph that I read all those years ago for Life or Death. Each of the novels is seated in. In, I never use the word inspired, um, but they're seated in a real life event or a case. Right. You know, it'd be something like you take this um, Baden Powell trial up in in Queensland at the moment, oh, the guy yes. who's been convicted. I mean, that's absolutely fascinating, and I can see in my head, you know, that idea of the you know the high functioning psychopath that he was, and I just tick over and thinking, you know, that's a great book. There's a great thriller <laughs> in there. You know, do you know what I mean? There are there are. There, that's the sort of thing that you'll pick up on, and um, and uh, but invariably I'll just create the characters and create the dilemma, uh, and then let the whole thing unfold. Um, and so it does mean throwing a tremendous amount of material away um, right. at times, but it also means it's incredibly organic. And you know, when I when I come in from my office and I say to my wife, "You would not believe what happened today." Excitedly, you know, I'm surprised as what the reader is when something has happened. I'm thinking, oh, you know, and I'm not saying that I'm not saying the characters tell me what to write because that would make me insane um, <laughs> and hearing voices. Yes. Um, but um, they don't always do as they're told. The characters, um, but um, but that's the process where that little eureka moment, you know, that comes to you where you suddenly think of a twist or a hook or something. Um, and it is tremendously exciting. So you don't always know who did it before you start, basically? No. I, I, when I got to the wards the end of the book, like Say You're Sorry, which was um, a couple of books ago, the you know there, it could have been any one of six people. And oh. I, I had a favourite. I had someone in the back of my mind that as I was writing, probably halfway through, I thought, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be great if, I could, if that could be the person that did it? But I kept thinking, but it's probably too big a leap. I probably can't. Get can't make that work. It would seem too outlandish or whatever, um, and the reader wouldn't buy it. And it wasn't until the penultimate chapter when I'd set... So I set it up where it could have been any one of about six people, and it was only when I got to that penultimate chapter that I thought, you know, I think I can make it work. Let's see what it looks like. And uh, and um, and so that's what normally happens. Yeah. And sometimes, it's funny, I'll, about halfway through, I'll, I'll, I'll think of an ending. I'll sort of envision a possible ending, and then it may be that I get there or it may be that I can't reach it, but I'll think of a, a, an alternative or a better one before yeah. I get there. Yeah. 
So are you doing a lot of redrafting then? Like are you blasting out a first draft to see what's possible and then redrafting? Uh, I never never sort of blast out. I mean, the first draft is so solid in terms of it might take me eight months to write a first, you know, eight, nine months to write a first draft. And each rewrite after that might only take a couple of weeks. Um, But it'll be quite strong. But what will happen is... So, you know, my, my agent once said this to me, that writing a novel, it's a bit like if you imagine building a car, okay? And I spend probably six months working on the first quarter of the book, and that's like building the chassis, you know, building right. a really, really solid, the, the wheels and the chassis. And once you have the engine, the engine that drives it, and once you have those in place, you can customise that car and make it look any way you like, but you need to have that fundamental engine and the and the solid chassis underneath it all and so i spend most of my but the last quarter of the book or third of the book often i can write in a month because everything is in place you know all you know i can see an ending it's come to me all the characters they're all you know the all of that and then you know the last third comes quickly but the first third of the book is you know i've just thrown away it's funny earlier this year i did forty thousand words and threw it threw it away and started oh. a whole new book you know um because wow. i just couldn't it just it just wasn't a strong enough structure for it to to take the novel you know is that something that you might use later that forty thousand words or is that just gone? yeah i thought about you know what it was it was it, there was a there, there was a villain in one of my early books called shatter and um there was a villain who, at the end of that book, I mean, probably Joe Lockman's sort of nemesis, the greatest, you know, yep. mind of, that he ever had to sort of confront. And at the end of that, that book, you know, this person, you know, was still alive. And I suddenly thought to myself, wouldn't it be great to bring him back, you know, yep. and for Joe to have to face this guy again? And so, and, you know, I published and everyone just was absolutely, this is for the next book, you know, uh, and were absolutely thrilled about this idea that I could bring this villain back. But 40,000 words in, I realized I was writing the same book again. Oh, the same, okay. It was the same motivations of this guy, and it was the same, and it was it was basically going to be a rerun of the first the first battle between Joe and this guy. And I thought, well, that can't work. I refuse to write the same book twice. <laughs> and um, you know, it's, I've seen too many other writers fall into that trap of looking like they're just posting it in, saying you know, and uh, and um, and so I threw it and, and thought to myself, unless I can think of a really novel plot way of bringing this guy back, where it's a completely different scenario. It's not just him trying to sort of outwit Joe, you know. Um, it can't work. So, so maybe can, maybe that idea will come to you in the middle of the night. Yeah, and that it, might it be may well. I may well think of. Yeah, it may well be that I can think. You know, um, that I can find a way of, of using him again. You know, because so, I mean, I think it's just a bit, it's a bit like you know what was done with Thomas Harris and and uh, Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. The idea that you know. Uh, you know, he can sort of, you know, come back again, you know, and but it has to be a completely different sort of scenario. Yes, you know, which it was in that case. So yeah. um, with regards to your writing then, I know that you're very busy, like we've just been discussing um, off podcast, your schedule for the for the next com- you know, coming months and you've got writers' festivals and you've got interviews and you've got all sorts of stuff going on. Um, how often do you write? When do you fit the writing in? Every day. Every day, okay. <laughs> Every day. You know, I will write seven days a week. Um, uh, I just did a just did a big interview for the Australian magazine, and the one thing that the the profile for a big profile, one thing the profile kept saying to me, but you must have some other hobby. There must be something you do other than write. You must do something. <laughs> and I'm going, no, 
my wife, in an interview, my wife saying, come on, t- tell me what else he does when he's not writing. And she said, look, and he said, that's all he does. <laughs> you must be such a fun guy. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. That's what she decided. She said I was much more interesting when I was a ghost writer because at least I had gossip about famous people, whereas now, you know, I'm just a boring novelist. Um, but, um, but no, it's, it's, you know, it, it's a discipline. It, I mean, you've got to understand, it's what I love. I love writing. I'm not saying that there aren't incredibly difficult days and, and my kids can sort of, you know, when they approach the cabana of cruelty, they're sort of looking to see whether, you know, whether what sort of mood I'm in, because whether it's been a good or a bad day. Um, but, um, you know, it's uh, it's what I do. And, and, I, and even when I'm traveling, you know, I'll try to, and on tour, I'll try to write every day or rewrite, you know, be writing or rewriting. And the only time I'll, I'll give a day a miss, it, it might be, you know, if I... Yesterday I had to answer about 30 different lots of questionnaires for sort of online blogs and websites and all around the world for the new book, and that took whole, all day to do it, um, yep. and so I didn't get any writing done yesterday. Um, but I've started writing this morning, so I've done a few hours already. Wow. And, uh, and so you're obviously, um, like given that you're, you can take up to eight months to do a draft, you're obviously sort of editing as you go, are you? Yeah, I, I Going guess. Back well, and yeah, I mean, in and doing all that sort of stuff. And and I agree that you know there are you know really is and you've probably heard this term before and it's a great I think it's a great description that there are that there are pioneers and there are settlers when it comes to writing you know yeah. and the pioneers are the people that just charge forward, throw it down, you know, plant a flag, just charge forward, plant another flag, and they figure they can go back and build the settlements later. Yeah, you know, um, and they just want to make sure they get the story down quickly, and then they go back and and flesh it out. Uh, I'm more the settler. I will set up camp and I'll get that chapter right, and then I'll explore a bit more and I'll set up another camp, and I write that way. And um, and so yeah, so 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 I, it's not so much going back and. I suppose it going back and tweaking it suddenly if you come up with a great idea in chapter you know um, chapter fifteen but you realise that you're going to have to set it up earlier yeah. you go back ch- back to chapter three and you insert the information you need to make something work later um, it'll be more that style of thing. Okay, well it's obviously working. Like the story of your first novel, The Suspect, and how it came to be published is the kind of is the stuff of writerly dreams. You had the bidding war at London Book Fair on 117 pages and you hadn't even finished the manuscript. What kind of pressure did that put you under to deliver? Um, it, was, it was that mixture because, you know, as you say, it's, 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 it's a story that will either, um, it will either inspire would-be writers or they'll hate me. I would hate <laughs> me if I wasn't me. Um, <laughs> the, um, it, it was a mixture of two things, I guess. I mean, on the one hand, it's like winning the lottery and you feel, I mean, enormously grateful that every dream you'd ever had you know, being a writer suddenly comes true, you know, in the space of sort of three hours of mad, wow. frenetic sort of bidding between, you know, publishers from all over the world. Um, um, and, and then, you know, w- within a couple of hours, though, the, the terror set in because, you know, I didn't even know it was a crime novel. I, it, I, it hadn't been plotted out. Um, it was, you know, less than a third of a book. Um, and, uh, and all of these people had, had bid for it. Um, not asking me how it finished, not asking me what was going to happen next. They just, you know, and to me it was like, you know, being, I mentioned being backed into favouritism for the Melbourne Cup, never having run the two miles before. <laughs> you know, and having people back you with put enormous amounts of money behind you. And, yeah. 
when you've never written, even though I'd written, you know, I'd, I'd finished, you know, I'd written 15 autobiographies for, for people as a ghostwriter. Yeah. So I, I knew, they knew I could deliver something, but I'd never written a novel before. And so um, that was scary. Um, that was, that was quite a scary prospect, but, but tell you how, it's a hell of a lot less scary. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good, I'm not going to say to you that I didn't want it to happen because, yeah. you know, it's nice when you've got enough money in the, you know, to know that you can actually write full time and you're not trying to, to um, deliver this thing to a deadline and do a full time job, you know. Yeah. Uh, they're the people that I admire. I mean, most, the vast majority of writers, people ask me who I admire most is among writers and it's those people that, write not just their first but their second their third their fourth whatever novel you know when they've worked a full day and put the kids to bed and read the bedtime stories and yeah yeah. they're the people that i admire yeah which is the reality for as you say for a lot of writers as well yeah so many people say writing is hard writing's not hard boxing is hard raising a disabled child is hard you know there are there are difficult days but in the grand scheme of things you know it's um there are a lot harder things out there than writing so I'm sure you've been asked this a million times, but <clears throat> what was the secret of this 117 pages, Michael? If I what knew was that. in them? <laughs> if you. I knew that, I mean that became the suspect. I mean it had. I think the suspect has a great opening chapter. You know, um, you know where Joe Lachlan's on the roof of a hospital trying to talk a young cancer sufferer down who who is sick of chemotherapy and has been told they have to do another round, and so it's. And, and, you know, in the first few pages, you get a great sense of Joe's sense of humor and humanity and, 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 um, and, uh, and it was sort of an, in, and even though that chapter has nothing to do with the latter, you know, the rest of the book, it's, it's, it doesn't set anything up other than introduce the character. Um, I think it captured the voice, you know, so much of it is, if, you know, if I could give my greatest piece of advice to any writer other than to just keep writing and writing and writing would be, Make them care. Yeah. Make them care. And I think for that opening 117 page, people cared about Joe. They really loved him as a character, and they and therefore, you know, they wanted to find out whether he could get out of this tremendous sort of you know um, dilemma that he was facing. So, where did he come from, Joe? Like where? where yeah, the idea for for Joe. I mean, yeah, like um, just Joe the character. I mean, as you say, he's. A quite extraordinary character. He's memorable. He's, you know, delivered beautifully in the first chapter of that first novel for you. Um, did he just come to you as you were writing? Did he? Was he inspired by something? Uh, well, I mean, I guess the the idea of doing basing the novel on on a psychologist came through. I was very fortunate many years ago to to spend a lot of time with a man called Paul Britton, who was a forensic psychologist in the UK, and he was the he was the real life character that Cracker was based upon. That wonderful. Oh yeah. BBC series with Robbie Coltrane playing Fitz, the uh, the profiler, and um, and I spent a lot of time with Paul, and and my fascination with the psychology of crime came from you know um, from from Paul and talking to him, and uh, and I guess when I decided to sit down and write a novel, and I thought, well, I never thought I'd use Joe Lockman again. He was he was the one I was going to write standalone novels. I was going to write one novel with Joe, and so I thought, okay. When, and I gave him early onset Parkinson's for two reasons. One, because I knew my main hero wasn't going to be a Jack Reacher, Jason Bourne, James Bond type right. hero who could outrun, yeah. you know, out, um, 
you know, out womanize, out whatever, out drink, you know, everyone else. He was, um, you know, he was going to be a vulnerable human being. And I thought there's a tragic irony in, in giving someone a brilliant mind but having putting it in a crumbling body. And so I, I created that character and I thought I'd never use him again. I thought my publishers wouldn't want me to use him again. I thought, who'd want a hero that had Parkinson's, you know? Um, and uh, and it was only really, I mean, I, I compromised to have him as a lesser character in, in the second novel. So only really with Shatter, which was four novels in, that I, I came up with a scenario or an idea where it, I thought, oh, Joe's the perfect character to, to tell this story, that right. I brought him back. and yeah. And then... I only brought him back and believed to me because my wife said that I could not leave him alone unless I sorted out his private life, you know. <laughs> I, you know. Which is true. <laughs> you know, and so it's almost like, you know, she just keeps insisting. It says, I'm not, you, you, you cannot, until you so, until he's happy, I cannot yeah. leave Joe until he's happy. Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, and people keep asking me, oh, look, when, when are you going to make Joe happy? And I said, well, that could be the last book. You really want it to be the last book? <laughs> he may never be happy. Yeah. <laughs> so um, given that you're writing essentially a book a year, aren't you? Approximately yes. a book a year, yeah. So have you ever experienced a time where you thought, what am I going to write about next? Or, or have you got Oh, no, I can tell you me? now. I can tell you now. I think it's um, every time I finish a book, and the last few weeks were always a mad scramble, you know, it's, you know, in terms of a mad rush. And, and uh, every time I finish, I will go into my wife and say, that's it. Every decent idea. I don't have a drawer full of ideas. I mean, this oh, you life or death. <laughs> no, life or death was a real no- novel sort of idea. That, that, I mean, the idea that that had been kicking around was very unusual because I don't have a drawer full of ideas. And every time I finish a book, I'm convinced that that's it. I will never write again. Every decent description, every decent one-liner, every decent idea I've ever had it gone. I'm an empty shell. I'm just a hollow man, and that's the end of my writing career. And I will wander around the house, and then about two hours later, I'll say to to my wife, I'm just going to go into my office and clean up all the paper on the floor and the post-it notes. And about two hours after that, she'll come looking for me, and I'll be at the computer, and she'll go, What's happened? She said, and I'll say, I've just thought of an idea. Yeah. <laughs> and well, and I, I and people don't believe me, but I swear to God, I will deliver. I'll press send on a book, and within two hours, be writing the next one. Wow! Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, all, all, all researching it, you know, wow. or, or, or online, having come up with an idea, and then thinking, okay. First of, all, first of all, mission number one, find out that no one's done it before you. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, that's a good start. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, certainly, I'm, I'll never forget, even before I ever wrote a novel, I remember contacting my agent saying, I've got this great idea, and it's this female anthropologist, and she's <laughs> going to solve crimes. And he said and he said to me, Kathy Reich, and I've gone, who? He's going, Kathy Reich, she's done that already. And I've gone, bugger. <laughs> uh, oh, well, start again. <laughs> yeah. All right, so you're also, I noticed you're on Facebook and Twitter. You've got a very glamorous new website, which is quite fabulous, and we'll put the um, the address for that and your Facebook and Twitter accounts into our show notes. But how do you, like when you started out sort of 10 years ago or so, there wasn't really this social media thing that there is now. Like how do you feel about the role of that in an author's life today? Oh, it's vital, you know. Yeah. I mean, I, to, to, it is to a degree... I re, you know, quite personally, I resent it. Yeah. You know, I mean, in a perfect world, and and I would love a situation where you simply, as a writer, had to write the book and it would succeed or fail on the quality of the book. 
Yeah. You know, if it's a good book, it will be well received, sell well, and if it's not so good, it won't be. But the reality of life now is that the very best of books can get overlooked or forgotten, um, and it becomes, you know, and social media, and you know, with the traditional publishers doing less and less touring and having less and less money for traditional advertising, more and more of the weight of marketing promotion is falling upon the writer, which yeah. again I have I slightly resent. I can understand it, you know, particularly when you sit in a marketing campaign with a publisher. I'm very fortunate that you know, they do big marketing campaigns, but even when you sit and they tell you the marketing campaign and they're rattling off, okay, well we're going to have you guest blog for this, 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 and we're going to have you do this, 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 and we want you to write a, a piece for 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 this magazine and. And then and you stop them and say, hold on, hold on. That's what I'm doing to market my book. What are you, you doing? doing? <laughs> <laughs> you know? And it does feel at times as though um, that, you know, it's, it's – and I know there is value added in publishing, you know, that really good – a really good marketing and promotion teams in terms of artwork and getting you – getting the buzz going and getting the – and particularly if you're going to get into that bestseller status, they need to – you need to have the sort of, um, you know, the, the big Ws and the targets and these people buying large numbers of copies. And, and there's no self-published author that's ever going to get into into those sorts of big supermarket no, no. and things like that. So this is what publishers can do for you. Um, but, um, but, you know, that sort of self-promotion and, you know, and again, I, I slightly I, – I slightly, you know, I always cringe that whole idea of having a – Anyway, even a website with my face on it just feel like, you know, I'm of a generation where you just look at it. I hate looking at my website. It's a big picture of me on it. I'm going, oh, there is, oh yes. you know. <laughs> from, you you okay. look lovely. Does that I, help? I look like a kitten killer. Let's face it, I do. Well, you are a, you are a crime writer. You can hardly, know, yeah, you know. Yeah, that whole idea of, uh, you know, the fact that, you know, you're, you're constantly sort of self-promoting and plugging. No, well, you shouldn't really. I mean, you should be using Twitter to... I think I was once quoted that you know, about 70% of your Twitter message should be about something other than your book or your, you know, your, your doing it because otherwise it just reads too much like you're just um, a marketing vehicle rather than uh, making people feel as though, you know, there's a little window into your life and what you're reading and what you're watching and all that sort of thing. Yeah. So do you spend much time on it? Not as much as I should. Although my publishers, I'm always, I'm always really flattered when they say, "Oh, you're so good with social media." And I mean, really, I feel as though I post about one tweet every three or four days, and 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 you know, and sometimes I go weeks, and I'm terrible with my website newsletters. You know, I always promise I'll do one a month, and I end up doing two a year. <laughs> oh well, you know, that's enough, isn't it? <laughs> I know. Well, I mean, I had this thing again with what it's, you know, the writing. I mean. The writing process is a bit like the famous, you know, von Bismarck quote about making sausages. You don't really want to know what goes into them. Yeah. You know? And it's like with the writing process, you know, I, it, it, the magic is in not letting people know too much about the process. And also, it's boring. I mean, you don't want to give people the plot to your latest book. So, no. you know, so what are you going to, day to day, you can't really tell them about much about what you're writing. You know, even my friends, they say to me, oh, what are you working on? I say, well, you know, it's another book, but I don't really want to tell them too much. Because no, I think one no. of the great failings of, 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 um, of writers, actually, and people who want to write, is they leave all their energy, you know, um, 
they leave it out there because they want to tell people about the book they want to write and they spend months or weeks or days talking about this book they want to write and they should actually spend all that energy actually writing the thing. Yes. So uh, would that be one of your top tips for aspiring authors to actually yeah, write the book rather be. than yeah, talking don't, about it? Yeah, don't, don't, just, don't just tell everyone and talk about it and discuss it with people and whatever. Actually sit down and write it. You know, it's, uh, it's that thing about, um, you know, I always feel you know, there are some people and there are some very celebrated books that have actually, uh, that, that have actually arisen out of the workshopping process. I mean, things like, you know, um, things like um, The Kite Runner, or, oh, yeah. or um, Curious Since and the Dog in the Night. You know, both of those books arose out of sort of writing workshops and programs and things like that. And there are some writers that really need that sort of community and that workshopping and that feedback. But um, I think too many writers actually use it as, uh, you know, do another workshop and therefore, uh, you know, as, as a survival, you know, after this next workshop, I'll be ready to start the novel type thing. Yeah. You know, um, whereas, you know, some, not everyone, but I think some should just buy a huge drum of bum glue and smear their seat with this glue and sit that down and just, you know, smoke that sucker just right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Michael. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Um, I really appreciate your talking to us and um, sharing some of your great insights. I can't wait to read your new book. Very excited. And I'm also going to go and sign up for your newsletter so that I can get my once every six months (laughs) update on what you're doing. Um, So um, good luck with all your festivals and all the things you've got coming up. and, And thank you once again. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed that chat with Michael Robotham. Now, I always find it fascinating when I hear about writers who don't plot their stories because it's something that I certainly am too scared not to do. Uh, it's it's uh, it, There are, of course, two schools of thought, plotting or pantsing, and, that's, and plotting is where you actually know what your story is going to be about. Sometimes people use index cards. Sometimes, sometimes people just write out a synopsis, and sometimes people have an Excel spreadsheet so they know exactly what is going to happen in every chapter. Whereas there are others who like to fly by the seat of their pants and that's why it's called pantsing and they just start writing and they see what happens and their character and the story unfolds on the page as they do that. Now the thing is I can understand that in some instances but I'm always in great admiration of crime writers and thriller writers who do that because their plots have to make sense so much more and they have to really ensure that all of the pieces and of the jigsaw go together so I think it's pretty amazing when people who especially crime and thriller authors who don't plot their stories in advance and Michael is certainly one of them. Now, of course, there is no right way or wrong way. It's completely up to you which way works for you. Obviously, plotting my stories would work better for me, but uh, you know, you might prefer to pants it. What I encourage you to do, though, is if you go, if you do one way and you feel like you're stuck, try another way. It maybe you can just throw caution to the wind, do you know what? As Michael says, write without a safety net and just see where that leads you. I know that there's some people who are scared to do that, to do that, not because of the quality of writing that's going to come out, but they're scared to go down a path where they're ultimately 
might throw away 10,000 words or 20,000 words. But you know what? That process of discovery may actually lead you, you know, those dud 10 or 20,000 words may actually lead you to the the gold, to what really is the amazing story. So um, yeah, I encourage you to try both methods and, and see which one works for you. I hope you enjoyed today's chat with Michael. The Murder and Mayhem podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, one of the world's leading centres for writing courses, with online and classroom writing courses in all genres of writing, including crime writing. Students enrol from all over the world. You'll find a course to suit your needs right here at writerscentre.com.au.